I just wanted to start this week's episode by giving my heartfelt thanks to the various leaders of Europe. Because if everything had gone according to plan, Dominic, you and me would be working frantically right now on some special episodes about how the EU works. But um, because all the leaders failed to get their act together this week and decide who should be in charge, we can just put our feet up. Welcome to a very relaxed episode of the Europeans. We can all just chill for the next half hour. That's true. I hadn't thought of it like that. They've given us time. Have you been lobbying for them not to yeah. make a decision? I just wrote a letter to Brussels saying, please, can you just carry on bickering for the next few months while we enjoy this beautiful weather? You may have no idea what we're talking about, but uh, I think, Katie, you're going to explain it later in Bad Week. I am. This is just a sneak peek. But uh, how are you? What's been going on in Amsterdam? Um, what have I been up to this week? Oh, it's one of those embarrassing weeks where I don't really have anything to report, but maybe that's refreshing. No news is good news. I went to the gym three times. Ooh, get you. That shows how much time I had on my hands. So are you um, swole right now, as the kids would say? I have no idea what that is. Does that mean swollen? Yeah, but in like a muscly way. Oh, no, in just like a hurty way. Oh, that's less hot. Yeah, not hot at all. Anyway, how's your week been? Uh, Pretty good. I can't remember if I told you this or not, but I accidentally joined a rock band a couple of weeks ago. Um, My friend was like, oh, our keyboardist has left the country. Can you play Fête de la Musique with us? Fête de la Musique, if you don't know, is this really special night here in France every year on the 21st of June where bands just like take to the streets and play and everyone comes out and enjoys it, kids, old people. It's just this really wonderful evening every year. Um, And this year I got to take part, which was very cool. Although we were playing in a place called Ici les Moulineaux, which my friend who lives nearby really described as the least rock and roll suburb of Paris. Um, But anyway, it was all going really great. We were playing some Paul Simon and the commuters heading back home from central Paris were loving it. But then the power went out. All the amplifiers just stopped playing for about five minutes. And there was lots of confusion and everyone like running around like headless chickens for about five minutes until it emerged that um, the source of the power outage was the local crepe lady who had decided to unplug us so that she could plug in the cable for her, I don't even know what you call it, her kind of pancake iron. That's amazing. So it was very funny and it was very French. I really like this story. I like the idea. It's very French that there's a hierarchy of crepes first then music yeah which is absolutely the right set of priorities in life i think any sensible person would agree crepes first sounds like the latest political party the the new name of marine le pen's party i would vote for that policy platform but um what's coming up on the podcast this week on the podcast this week we have a guest later in the show who is a former actor who starred almost accidentally in one of the bbc's most infamous television shows of all time El Dorado. It was a a kind of Euro soap set on the Spanish coast with cast members from all over the continent and people speaking in many different languages. This might sound like just what we all need on our televisions right now. But perhaps the world wasn't ready for it 25 years ago, and arguably the BBC wasn't really ready for it either. And it was a little bit of a flop. So our guest, Kai Maurer, is a German man who, at the age of 18, kind of stumbled into this show accidentally as a non-actor. And we're going to give him a call to reminisce about this epic cult series that finished 25 years ago. But first... Who's had a bad week, Katie? I would say it's been a bad week for EU decision-making. 
so when we were talking earlier about what we should talk about for Good Week, Bad Week this week, you seemed very bored by what I'm about to say, which is kind of fair enough because the news is that there is no news. Basically, what happened this week was that all of the leaders from the EU countries sat down in Brussels and tried to work out who should be given the five top jobs in the European Union, which are all up for grabs this summer. Um, so probably the most important of them is head of the European Commission, a job currently held by the Mary Luxemburger, Jean-Claude Juncker. And that is basically the job of steering the EU ship, driving the policy agenda, representing Europe on the world stage, big things like that. And uh, Donald Tusk's job as head of the European Council is also up for grabs. There is the head of the European Central Bank job up for grabs, head of foreign policy, head of the parliament. So <laughs> I don't understand why you're not fascinated by all of this. Pay attention. The trouble is that it's the EU national leaders who are largely in charge of picking names for these top jobs. And they are really divided. So Merkel has been backing this guy, Manfred Weber, because he is both German and conservative, like her. So she kind of has to. Macron, on the other hand, doesn't like Manfred Weber, uh, supposedly because he's not experienced enough, but also, I suspect, because Manfred is deeply uncharismatic and Macron wants someone who can actually make people like Europe and get excited about it. So Macron wanted Margareta Vestager, who is this pretty kick-ass Danish politician. Apparently, she inspired the TV series Borgen. I don't know if you've watched it. I love Borgen. It's like the best thing on TV ever. So good. And yeah, Vestager is apparently the woman who inspired it. Um, and she has been in the headlines a lot over the past couple of years because she's been in charge of competition in the EU. So she's been handing out these massive fines to Apple and Google, which has been getting quite a lot of attention. The Socialists also had another different candidate they wanted, um, Franz Timmermans. Dutch socialist guy very charismatic I'm sure you know lots more about him than I do Dominic mm, well, a little bit he's from Limburg fun fact um, anyway the long and short of it is that the EU leaders couldn't agree on any candidate because each of them was opposed by one faction or another for various reasons so it's back to the drawing board do you, and do you think that sorry to interrupt do you think that uh, Angela Merkel is actually kind of pleased that Manfred Weber has been ruled out? Because surely she doesn't want someone so uncharismatic as like one of the figureheads of the European Union. Um, that's not going to help the European project, which she's a fan of. I mean, I understand she has to back him because he's part of the sister. Isn't he part of the same party or the sister party of hers? Well, it's difficult to know what Merkel really thinks. I mean, one thing that she has been saying publicly is that she's really annoyed by everyone saying, oh, Merkel, maybe you should do the job. You're stepping down as German leader anyway. And she's just been like, stop saying that. Like, I keep saying I don't want the job and you all keep ignoring me when I'm saying that. I just want to take some time off and do the gardening. Um, but there are some other interesting names being thrown up now that those three are kind of out of the picture, uh, including your prime minister, Dominic, Dutch prime minister, Mark Rutte. Even though, like Merkel, he's like, stop trying to make me move to Brussels. I actually quite like being the Dutch Prime Minister. Yeah, he'd have to quit his job as Prime Minister of the Netherlands. Why would he do that? Uh, people also talk about Michel Barnier, maybe, the Brexit negotiator. Or uh, maybe Dalia Gruboskaita, who's the Latvian president. So, yeah, it's kind of all to play for. They have said that they're trying, they want to have gender parity across the top jobs, haven't they? Yeah, I know Macron has said that, although getting gender parity across five jobs might be a bit tricky. But in general, the reason I think it's been a bad week for EU decision making is that 
I just think it was a really bad look. Like, we've just had these elections where more than 50% of Europeans actually voted in them for the first time in, like, 25 years. And more people are paying even a vague interest in Brussels than they have done for a while. And then we have what, to me, looks like this super opaque process with these leaders, like, gathering behind closed doors to make decisions about it. And it's a super male gathering, by the way. There's barely any women in the room. So just in terms of countering this image that a lot of people have of Brussels as being like a bunch of men in suits making decisions behind closed doors. I don't think it's been a great week for that. But I don't know, they're not done yet. So maybe it's a little bit too early for me to be getting down about the process. And actually, I think probably most people like me aren't paying much attention to it. Nobody cares anyway. So it's fine. I mean, no, that's not the solution. But um, I did find it interesting that I was so reluctant to click on the articles that were like talking about what was happening. I was like, oh, yeah, why is that? But I love politics and I love reading about like negotiations and things. I'm a geek. Why? Why don't I want to read these articles? Maybe you still find EU politics inherently boring despite making this podcast for 18 months. Yeah, I don't know. But actually, now you're talking about it, I do think there are some interesting dynamics. Actually, I think it's partly that I hate reading about things that don't feel like they're going to have any any resolution anytime soon. Okay. So it's really boring reading about a deadlock. Well, we will have to see how long that deadlock goes on. Um, they're supposed to be having another crack at it on Sunday. So watch this space. Who or what has it been a good week for? Uh, it has been a good week for justice in Spain after the Supreme Court raised the convictions of the so-called Wolfpack gang from sexual assault to rape, increasing their sentences from 9 to 15 years. Now, we've talked about this really atrocious case before, so I won't spend too long on the disturbing details, but it led to huge nationwide protests in spring last year from people who were appalled that these five men who had raped a woman and filmed it were only being charged with sexual assault. So in April last year, the lower court ruled that the men could only be charged with sexual assault because the victim had not fought back or struggled. Protesters pointed out that there is a massive problem with the law if victims of rape are expected to have to fight back in order to be able to argue that it was rape in court. And we talked about this in our episode entitled Eurovision, Eurovision, which is really inappropriate now. Um, it wasn't just about this, but we uh, talked about Eurovision and we also talked about this case with the Spanish activist and writer Brigitte Vasallo in May 2018. So go and look back if you want to hear more about it. But this ruling is, I think, very good news for justice. And it not only means that the uh, sentences have been upped from 9 to 15 years, but also demands that the men pay €100,000 to the victim. The Spanish government indicated that they were happy with the higher court's ruling as they had been trying to clarify the law to make a case like this easier to try. So I think it's okay to argue that this is a good week for justice, don't you, Katie? Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm outraged that it had to come to this in the first place. This is just an awful, awful, awful case. But I am glad that there is finally a legal decision in it that does make sense. And also, I'm really glad that um, so much has been happening in Spanish feminism since then. I mean, there's been some amazing activism rising out of this. Yeah, that's true. It has really created an upswell of support. And it coincided with the emergence of the Me Too movement in Spain last year. Did Me Too arrive last year? It seems like it's been around forever, doesn't it? Uh, it started in late 2017, I think. Well, regardless, it seems like there is finally some change happening in Spain on this issue. So good week for justice in Spain. Time for an interview. 
Yeah, so just to follow you in on the background, um, I recently stumbled across an article from the Guardian newspaper uh, about an old BBC TV show called El Dorado. Uh, I think it was my friend Gav Jacobson who who put me onto this, so thanks for that, Gav. Um, and through this amazing article, I discovered that back in the 1990s, the BBC had launched this amazing and in some ways spectacularly disastrous experiment in the form of this soap. It was conceived as a soap about British expats living in Spain. But basically some ambitious TV executives got very excited about this idea that maybe maybe we can make it into a soap opera for all of Europe and like everyone around the continent will watch it. So German people will watch it and Danish people, everyone. And the whole thing was very rushed and pretty bad if you watch bits of it that are still around on YouTube. But it was kind of fascinating as an experiment and also very fateful in determining the life of a young German who just happened to be in the area at the time of filming. His name is Kaimara and we needed to hear the story of El Dorado from the horse's mouth. So we gave him a ring. So listen, I kind of got obsessed briefly with El Dorado. (laughs) Yeah, you keep saying briefly. (laughs) I'm 31, so I wasn't really kind of around to watch it. But it was just like really interesting to me that the BBC had like made this kind of Euro soap 30 years ago nearly. Is it really that long ago? Oh my God. And I wondered if you could start by telling us the story of like how you ended up getting a part on this show in the first place. Okay, rewind. I was 18, so quite some time ago. And I ended up somehow traveling around Europe, as you do. Uh, I ended up in Spain. And as you do, as an 18-year-old, you run out of money. And a friend of mine said, look, you seem to be running out of money. And I said, yeah, isn't that, isn't that kind of funny? You're in Spain, wonderful, wonderful country, no money. What are we going to do now? It's like, okay, well, how about I pay you some money if you dye your hair blonde? I thought that's a very odd proposition but I went along with it because at the time it was better than working um, so we went off to the hairdresser and um, had my hair dyed blonde and I had another friend of mine who I think a week later pointed out that there was an audition for some television series for the BBC of course probably everybody knows I'm German so I have no idea what the BBC is so I went yeah I'll come along with that and they went, oh, no, it's the BBC. It's, it's, it's quite big in England. And I went, BBC, no idea what that is. I might as well say Spiegel in Germany, and nobody else will know what that means. Um, so I had no idea what he was on about. But he dragged me to this audition, and we did a bit of reading. And then I got a phone call a couple of days later saying, yes, I have the part. Again, they went, oh, it's the BBC. And I'm going, what's the BBC? I have no idea. <laughs> And with regards to you have the part and they're doing a soap, I still didn't know what they were talking about because I didn't know what a soap was. So it was all very exciting. And I went, yes, I'll do it. Woo-hoo. Thinking uh, it might be, you know, a laugh and a giggle. And then I, I eventually saw how big it actually was. What was your experience in acting? Well, I had done some stage work or quite a lot of stage work with musical instruments on the stage, but with regards to acting, very little. Okay, so was it, were you a little bit scared about having to go onto a TV set and deliver lines, or did you have that 18 year old confidence that you would just take it all in your stride and make it work? I think you have a certain degree of confidence, but I think that was all built up because before I was, or before they started filming, they said to me, right, Kai, off you go, 
um, for two months down the beach, there's a chappie there who will teach you to windsurf. So off you go, swallow half the ocean, and then come back sort of vaguely knowing how to windsurf. So by the time I arrived on set, <laughs> I was just tired. <laughs> <laughs> but hang on. So just to be clear, the windsurfing thing was because you were hired to play this kind of beach bum character called Dieter. Yeah, no. What, so what they did is in order for me to play that character, they said, well, you must learn how to windsurf. So down the beach every morning, uh, seven o'clock for the next two months. See you then. Which is kind of ironic because I thought, oh, this has nicely prepared me for the role. And of course, if you look for all the episodes, I never once was on the water. <laughs> it was <laughs> so funny. Um, but yeah, so that's how it all started. Oh, so uh, El Dorado is often like held up as one of the most expensive, extravagant commissions from the BBC. Did it feel really like luxurious and extravagant when you arrived on set? Uh, to me, it was, I think. As an 18-year-old, I think you stand there and you look at what they've built out of nothing in the middle of a mountain crevasse, really. I mean, they've carved out an entire little village loads of cameras pointing at you, loads of people there. It did look quite expensive. But I've also read that there were some problems with this set that they built and you couldn't, you know, things were a little bit maybe on the flimsy side. Well, you couldn't live in it, no. I mean, you know, you'd go to the toilet, you couldn't really flush it. But, you know, the houses were there, the walls were there, flimsy or not, they were all there. Swimming pool had lovely water in it. And, yes, of course, the supermarket shelves were all filled with empty boxes. But still, it was pretty much all there as you saw it. Did you have fun on set? Was it like hard work or was it was it actually fun? I think it was a bit of both. You were typically given a script uh, the night before, sometimes the week before, depending on how, how much they wanted you to read. So you could do some prepping at home. Uh, and then, of course, as an 18-year-old, you'd go and explore the town in the, of an evening. You'd do your sometimes six hours, sometimes eight hours, sometimes 10-hour days. And again, as a youngster, I think this is all very, very exciting. It didn't really feel like work at the time. It felt like, wow, and somebody's paying you to do this. This is exciting. I had great fun. So this started out as a show that was supposed to be about British expats living in this kind of British bubble in Spain, but eventually got turned into this kind of Euro drama with like Scandinavian actors saying their lines in their own languages without subtitling and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Did that just make it really hard to understand what was going on the whole time or not? The script would always be in English. So you, you read the script and you know what the Norwegians would say because it would say it in the script. However, once you watch it, it would all be in Danish, French, German, Spanish, whatever language that character uh, used to speak at the time. But of course, if you watch it back uh, a couple of months later or a couple of weeks later, to be honest with you, I didn't understand it uh, halfway through. It's a tricky one, isn't it? I think the idea was absolutely brilliant, was probably light years ahead of anything that had been done before, um, and that invariably ended up being its downfall as well. Um, but yes, you, you're quite right in what you're saying. If you don't speak another language, you, you tend to switch off. And given that the show was only, what, 25 minutes long each episode, and you had 15 minutes sometimes of different languages that you don't quite understand. So the question really was at the time, can you follow that? Mm, I'm not sure. Well, and what was it like for you when it started broadcasting? Were you still living in Spain at the time? Yes, I was. By then you knew what the BBC was. I still didn't know. 
it's a bit like me saying to you, do you know what ZDF is? Yeah, true. I still didn't quite understand uh, the impact of it, to be fair. It only dawned on me when I had to go to the UK for something, um, how big it actually was. Because at that point, were you getting, when you went to London, did you, did you get stopped in the street by people saying, oh, you're that German guy off that show? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we frequently got, you know, you should never believe your own press, but and of course, down in Spain, you get all the English papers anyway, so we... We were privy to what the write-ups were, positive and mainly negative. But yes, and I think at the time I was a bit hard to miss with that bleach blonde hair as well. That didn't really help. (laughs) So, yeah, that was kind of intriguing and interesting. I guess it would be really different making it like now because this was all pre-internet. So it wasn't possible to kind of read all the tweets about it and stuff like that. If you had the internet now, it would be a whole different ballgame, wouldn't it really? I mean, you'd have instant access to it and you'd probably have various translation programs that could help out. <laughs> and some people think that it should come back, that the time is ripe for a comeback series. What's your opinion about that? I wouldn't mind if it were to come back. It's very hard to comment as to what makes this time now the right time, what with Brexit going on and all that. <laughs> but I think every 10 years, there's this certain sentiment that is still bubbling with regards to this failed, epically failed uh, TV soap. And a lot of people seem to think that it might like to come back. Although I can't tell you, various people have already passed away from the series as well. So I don't know in what capacity and with whom it might come back. If it does ever come back. I don't know, but it would be fun, wouldn't it? Sort of 30 years later, going what they're up to now. (laughs) Definitely. I personally think it would be a great idea to come back. And there's a real nostalgia at the moment for like these old series that, yeah, you could capture that audience, I think. Um, but you now live in the UK. How did that did that happen because of the show? It did. Uh, indirectly, it did. I was there for the best part of a year. And then I thought, oh, I should go to the UK and, um, and, and study some classical acting. I did it the other way around. Uh, so I came over here and studied at Lambda. Uh, whereas before my accent was it's more like this when I spoke. <laughs> um, it's all changed now. You do like that. So that's what I did. And invariably, I got stuck and I did bits and pieces and uh, smaller film work, smaller television work, but a theatre. And that invariably got me stuck here. I read on your IMDb page that you got typecast a lot as the German. That must have been quite annoying. I guess you have to take it with a pinch of salt. I guess I should have really done something about my name. I guess if you put my name forward and there's only one thing a casting director will think when they read that name, they go, how do you pronounce this? must be foreign and then of course they look at where i'm from they go oh german no we don't have any nazi parts see you later um that pretty much was although i don't really look i'm not six foot five blonde hair blue eyes i'm the exact opposite really grandparents come from the czech republic so it's um a different look altogether uh but yeah i never got that far simply because it was just warded off at the first uh, the first hurdle by the first person that, that saw the name really yeah so um mainly that was the issue I'm foreign, therefore I can't speak English. So instead of acting, you ended up becoming a flying instructor. Yeah, but that was all a gag initially. And, and, and the flying ended up being a trial flight initially. I thought, oh, this is, uh, this is interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll have a stab at that. So, so I started learning to fly with no intention of being a flying instructor, really. 
Um, started flying, just enjoyed it, the freedom that you get with it. And uh, uh, years down the line, I ended up being a flying instructor. Yes. Nice. Do your colleagues at work all know about your past in El Dorado? It so happens that a lot of my students happen to be a bit older than me. <laughs> I'm quite easy to find. If you punch me into Google, I come up. Uh, <laughs> there's no hiding. But yeah, they do. Uh, most of them do. And if they did do a rerun, could they potentially tempt you back from flying school to go on the show again? They probably could, yeah, for the sake of uh, a rerun of that very particular series that got everything started, I think, absolutely. Great. Well, we'll call the BBC now and make it happen. Yeah, that'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? (laughs) So I know perhaps people look like a bit snarky about non-actors appearing in a big soap and that being like the downfall of this show. But to be fair to Kai and uh, the other actors... It's just a bit like me hosting a podcast despite having absolutely no journalistic experience. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? Here's to the amateurs out there. Yeah, amateur pride. Woo! Um, should we have a happy ending? Yes, please. Do you ever have nightmares about your final exams at school, Katie? Yeah, it's funny you should say that. So before I went on stage for my musical performance this week, I had a variant on that nightmare, which was that I had got up on stage and my hands were like hovering over the keyboards. And then I just couldn't remember any of the notes to play. (gasps) Horrible. Oh, my God. I so know that. But in like going on stage during an opera performance and having not learned the opera, that's that's my nightmare. But I do also actually have school exam dreams where um, I go into the hall and I realise that I just there's one exam I never took so I never graduated and I also never did the work oh, man. and it's really horrible sitting there doing an economics paper that I don't know classic nightmare classic nightmare and I'm sure other people have them too but um, for one teenager Loïc who lives in a small village the village of Albi uh, north of Toulouse he might have thought that he was actually in a nightmare as he set off to do his final baccalaureate exam First, he missed his bus, which sucks, particularly when you live in a tiny village with very infrequent buses. Uh, He thought he was screwed, but he had an idea. He would take his father's car. Surely his father wouldn't mind, what with the stakes being so high. So off he set on the road in the car, and perhaps due to the nerves of the upcoming exams, he lost control of the car whilst turning and crashed into the guardrail on the opposite side of the road. I thought this was supposed to be a happy ending. Yeah, it is. Be patient, Katie. You know, a happy ending needs to have like some tension before you actually have the happy ending. Have you ever... Okay, it's just a bit I've got to be rooting for young Loic. The police soon arrived at the scene and they breathalyzed him, which is a stressful experience even if you haven't been drinking. And he passed the alcohol test and told the policeman about his predicament. And this is where it stops becoming a nightmare because this wouldn't happen in a bad dream. Well, not in any I've ever had. Um, The policeman took pity on him. They jumped in the police car together and dropped him off at school very quickly. Loic arrived minutes before the start of the exam and the police waved him off, wishing him good luck with the test. Happy ending. Is it actually a happy ending yet? We don't know if he passed or not. Yeah. Unfortunately, he failed and we'll have to resit next year. (laughs) I've no idea if he passed yet. Maybe he doesn't either. No, he won't do yet. So the exam results are a big day, a very big day every year in France. So we will know more 
of Young Luke's fate in a couple of weeks' time. But I'm pretty sure he's going to ace them. Oh, if only that's how it ended in my dreams. That's all we've got time for this week. But thank you once again for downloading and listening to an episode of The Europeans. We also want to thank the very generous people who are helping to keep the show running on Patreon with as little as a dollar a month. Particular thanks this week to Marine Fribourg, who has just signed up. Marine, thank you. We are in the process of trying to get together some merchandise to give out as tokens of our gratitude to our very generous Patreon supporters. Um, we just haven't thought of the right eye-catching slogan yet to write on the side of our tote bags. So if anyone has any idea for some witty European slogans, please send us an email at europeanspodcast at gmail.com. Um, and people can also get in touch on a wealth of other social medias. We are on a wealth of other social medias. Uh, we're on Twitter at Europeanspod, Instagram, Europeanspodcast. Uh, we're also on Facebook if you type in the Europeans Podcast. Or you can send us an email, europeanspodcast at gmail.com. I already said our email address. And also, how is that a social media? Well, I'm always confused about what is a form of social media. People talk about WhatsApp as if it's a form of social media. I just say it's a messaging service. I do agree with you, but I also think that we should continue this conversation off mic so that people can get on with their lives. Bye, everyone. See you next week. Bye.